If you want a great conversation with a Philadelphia sports figure you should know more about, listen to One on One with Matt Leon on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio In Depth. I'm Matt Leon. Mikhail Gorbachev died earlier this week. The last leader of the communist Soviet Union, he tried to implement reforms in the country, but those reforms eventually helped lead to the collapse of the USSR in 1991. He won the 1990 Nobel Peace Prize for his role in ending the Cold War. There is a lot to talk about with Gorbachev, and we wanted to dig into his legacy and talk about how he will be remembered. So we caught up with Dr. Mark Schrod. He is a professor of political science and director of Russian Air studies at Villanova University. Before we kind of dig into Mikhail Gorbachev's legacy and his career, I was fascinated by a thread you put on Twitter. You actually met him. Can you kind of recount meeting Mikhail Gorbachev and what that was like? Oh, absolutely. You know, because I, I get people ask me, it's a weird thing to be interested in is, you know, Russia, Russian politics. And people say, you know, what, what got you into it? And, you know, I'd long been interested in Russia and I wanted to go to Russia, you know, for uh, for a long time. Finally, after doing uh, years of language study, finally uh, ended up going to Russia in the summer of 1996. And I knew that that was a big time for Russian politics, that this was the time that was going to be the first post-Soviet presidential election. The incumbent president, Boris Yeltsin, was, uh, you know, had public approval ratings of 10 percent or lower. His main rival was the, the communist leader, Gennady Zyuganov. And so it looked like the big worry at that time was that Russia was going to vote itself back into communism. And uh, and, and so one of the things that's, you know, I, I ended up going to Russia and, and being a student at, at Moscow State University, which is kind of the, the flagship national university of, of Russia. And, and literally the day after we landed, you know, first day, you know, we landed, figure out where, you know, our, our home states are and stuff like that. First day of classes, they say, okay, you are now a student at Moscow State University. This upcoming presidential election, there's a series of meet the candidate forums and uh, they start tonight. And here's your ticket. You're a Moscow State University student. Here's your ticket to this forum. You're in row three. Tonight's meeting is with Mikhail Gorbachev, who's running for president. And, and Gorbachev ended up getting only one half of 1% of the vote. He came in seventh place because, you know, Russians very much blamed him for the collapse of the Soviet Union and, you know, the prestige that came with that. But for me, it was like, literally, you know, I'm, I'm a kid from Iowa. I just got off the plane and literally second day in Russia, they say, here's your ticket to go meet Mikhail Gorbachev. And it was just like the most enthralling thing I'd ever seen. You know, I got there early. There was absolutely no security at the place, there were no, you know, metal detectors, no security officers of any type that I had seen. And you had this jam-packed auditorium, you know, and it was just a, this wild and raucous exchange of ideas and 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 debates, you know, uh, totally unlike anything I had ever seen in American politics. With you know, very, you know, all the questions are, you know, presidential debates are scripted and highly vetted, and everything's, you know, this was just raw politics, and it was something that I had seen from Mikhail Gorbachev when he was Secretary General. He was kind of the first of his type to kind of go and meet the people and talk to people and, and you know, get into the crowds and mix it up with people and, and, and uh, you know, debate them about, uh, you know, uh, democratic goals and all sorts of different, uh, different things. It was two, two and a half hours of just nonstop 
politicking back and forth. And it was like the most raw unscripted thing I'd ever seen. And so at the very end of this, this thing, uh, you know, there are no orderly lines in Russia. So there's just this kind of crowd that gathered in front of me, um, you know, people who were seeking a word personally or seeking an autograph. And eventually I kind of elbowed my way up to the, to the front of the podium and, and got a little, uh, souvenir. I got a, an autograph from Mikhail Gorbachev. We exchanged some little pleasantries and, you know, I kind of went on my way. And so, so people always ask me, they say, you know, well, what got you interested in Russian politics? They say, you know, second day in Russia, meeting Mikhail Gorbachev face to face is a, a pretty good way to get onto that, uh, that kind of trajectory that, that leads you into a position like this. One of the things that's interesting about him is people talk about the ways he tried to change the USSR, Russia, modernize, kind of open up the country. And a lot of times I feel like he's looked at as an outsider who tried to change things. He was very much a a member of the Communist Party. He had worked his way up through the ranks. This was not someone coming from the outside trying to impart change. He very much had come up through the party, right? Right, right. That's exactly it. I think in this week, we kind of valorize him in the West as, you know, we almost view him as like this pro-democracy. He was, he was the good guy. He was like this pro-democracy mole who somehow got himself into the system and uh, that his ultimate goal was to tear down the entire communist administrative economy, you know, from within. No, that was just the opposite, right? He was, uh, you know, all of his reforms that he instituted that ultimately brought down the system were not intended to destroy uh, the economy and certainly not intended to destroy the Soviet Union. He went in trying to make it work better, trying to institute reforms to make the system work better. He was very realistic in, in recognizing that the Soviet Union was falling further and further behind the West. He was a realist in recognizing that you know the economy is very much based, as it is kind of today, the Russian economy on, on export of petrochemicals, and there wasn't a whole lot of life in the economy. And so a lot of his reforms were trying to get the economy going, trying to restart uh, the, the economy, restructuring the economy or perestroika is what it was known in, in the Soviet Union. That was what he was trying to do from the very beginning, trying to get the economy working better, not trying to make it, you know, to make it implode. But that was the problem with it was that, you know, the entire Soviet administrative command economy was structured in such a way that it was highly resistant to change uh, and any efforts to kind of tinker with it were not only pushed back upon, but were ultimately ultimately fatal. So if you keep kind of one of the, one of the pictures I use in, in uh, when I'm teaching about this in my Russian politics course is there's this great political cartoon of a little um, Mikhail Gorbachev who, who looks like an auto mechanic. And he's got the Soviet Union as this car that's up on the rack. And he's got like all the pieces of the car strewn out in front of him. And it just says, you know, it says perestroika. It's like, and now comes the hard part, right? Tearing everything out of the system was was the easy thing. But trying to put it back together in a way that actually functions well, you know, there was no roadmap for this and no way to actually make this happen in, a, in sort of a, 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 an orderly fashion. So it was uh, it was definitely, you know, he, he wasn't this guy who was just kind of smuggled in to make the system, you know, tear it down from within. He was honestly until the very end trying to make, you know, preserve the Soviet Union, trying to make it work better and be more responsive to the needs of its own people. You mentioned perestroika. The other word I heard a lot attributed to him was glasnost, openness, trying to have better relations with the U.S. And in some of the readings, and I remember hearing this, you know, you talk about how the economic system was resistant. What I've read, a lot of Russian people were uncomfortable with the idea of openness. Is that fair? Or, you know, how was that received? Because 
we look at it through the eyes of the West, but within Russia, how was that received? So glasnost is interesting. It's um, it often gets translated as like openness. I think a better translation of it is is like the the word frankness. The idea is that we need to have a, a frank discussion about how bad our economy is. You know, so we can't have any illusions about the problems in the system, right? So the idea was is almost like whistleblower protections, right? So if you work at a factory and you're making widgets, and you know the the factory manager is using the factory car as like his own his own personal car and he's got like a chauffeur and stuff like that. And he's, you know, bilking money out of the system. Well, you should be able to say, Hey, that's not right. You know, we need to have an open discussion about, you know, making our factories work better. And then it sort of snowballed from there. It became very clear that, you know, you can't just talk about the inadequacies of any one factory in and of itself. We have to talk about the inadequacies of the overall system. So it was meant as kind of a supplement to that economic perestroika, but then it kind of took on a life of its own. But but as to your point about, you know, how people received it, I think at the very beginning, you know, 85, 86, uh, 87, they were very hesitant about it because Gorbachev was kind of a child of, you know, the 1960s and the Khrushchev generation, you know, so after Stalin dies in 1953, you have kind of this interregnum and then Khrushchev comes and there's a little bit of an opening, kind of a thaw in relations, kind of a, a liberalization. And, and people were very hesitant to kind of embrace that liberalization because they recognized from the, that, you know, the, the Khrushchev era that those liberalizations, those, those freedoms, however minute, can be taken away very, very quickly. So Gorbachev, you know, Khrushchev was in power you know, for the better part of a decade, but then was ultimately deposed in sort of a palace coup and, and replaced with Leonid Brezhnev. And he tightened up the screws again, right? And so a lot of the people who kind of embraced this liberalization back in the 1960s learned the hard way that, hey, you don't want to stick your neck out too far because there's nothing that says that this is is permanent, that this liberalization is going to to uh, to be the way to go. You know, so there could be a hard line turn at any point, and that was the big challenge. So I think in the early years, people were just kind of feeling this guy out. Okay, you know, and not just in the Soviet Union, but also in up and down Eastern Europe, Poland, East Germany, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, trying to get a sense of this guy and say, okay, is this is this for real or is this just another you know Khrushchev thing where you know. We try to go out there and say, yeah, I think, you know, having a little bit more freedom, you know, freedom of association, freedom of engagements, you know, that's going to be a good thing. Just making sure that that's really on the level. And that's really what it is. Uh, but, you know, by the time, you know, 1988 rolls around, 89, you start to get, you know, dramatic liberalization up and down sort of Eastern Europe uh, in those those satellite states. Uh, it really does kind of take on a life of its own. And, and by that point in time, Gorbachev kind of goes from being this leader, you know, of a, a liberalizing force by, you know, the 19, by 1990 and 1991, he's starting to look like the old fuddy-duddy, right? He's looking like the guy who's like, whoa, whoa, this, this reform, you know, political and economic reform is going too fast. You know, we need to tap the brakes. And suddenly, you know, he's starting to fail by comparison to guys like, like uh, Boris Yeltsin, who are taking that baton of democratization and liberalization and, uh, and they're running with it. And they're making him look like the old fogey who's, uh, who's lost in the old Soviet ways of the past. We need to take a break. We will continue our conversation with Dr. Mark Schrott about Mikhail Gorbachev right after this. This is KYW News Radio In-Depth. And we are back as we continue our conversation with Dr. Mark Schrod of Villanova University on KYW News Radio In-Depth. So eventually you have the, the USSR 
I don't know if dissolves the right word, but and you had the satellite states become independent. It seems to me one of the real this could have gotten incredibly awful where Russia drops the hammer and that didn't happen. How big a part of that is Gorbachev's legacy that this didn't turn incredibly awful. And that is, that is, I think his legacy right there is that it could have, you know um, you know, if you, if you think about it, the, the time frame, you know, 1989, that's, you know, you got liberalization up and down Eastern Europe, but that's also, uh, you know, Tiananmen Square in China, right? So you've got this pro-democracy liberalization protests in, uh, in, in China that were also prompted by Gorbachev, by the way, you know, one of the reasons why there were these huge student demonstrations is that that corresponded with a state visit of Mikhail Gorbachev to, to Beijing. Right. And so everybody was, you know, kind of rallying around Gorbachev, even in China at that point in time. And so, but the, the idea was, you know, the question that's always out there is that could Gorbachev had done a Tiananmen square and called in the tanks and just rolled this whole thing up and crushed all this opposition. And that was an option, right? It was a, a very real option. And so, you know, historians, political scientists uh, to this day kind of do these retrospectives and, and try to understand, say, okay, well, what was the point of no return for the Soviet Union? And so you had protests, rumblings of nationalist protest in, in the Caucasus, you know, Soviet Georgia at that point in time, Azerbaijan, Armenia, and especially the Baltic states. And so in 1990, you ended up having these, these protests in, in Vilnius, Lithuania, and uh, there were sort of hardline crackdowns, right? And so there were uh, anti, anti-nationalist uh, sort of a crackdown. Tanks rolled through the streets. You ended up having uh, a number of protesters were killed. And, and Gorbachev looking, you know, wanting to be, you know, the good guy in all of this, especially in his relations with the West, says, you know, hey, it wasn't me. I didn't do that, right? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm the good guy here which was equally as problematic, right? It was like, okay, well, if, if you're not the guy who's calling in the tanks, who's in control of the military here, right? Who's calling in the tanks? It, you, so either you're lying, you know, and not acting in good faith, or, you know, we have reason to question what's, what's you know, going on with the stability of, of your country. But a lot of people do look at that, that you know, that clamp down in, in, in Vilnius and sort of the nonviolent protest that kind of spiraled out of that as well. Um, as, as kind of the point of no return, that there was, you know, there was no putting, you know, Pandora back in the box uh, at that point in time. So uh, I think at that point, there was kind of recognition that the Soviet Union could be held together with tape and glue and, and, and sort of the use of force, but it wouldn't ultimately be a good thing. Uh, and I think it was, it was certainly to Gorbachev's credit that, you know, he recognized that and was not willing to, you know, to, to do the Tiananmen Square, to do a, a giant crackdown. And just kind of let let these things evolve of their own uh, of their own accord. Could we run the, for lack of a better term, like the Russian simulation, the USSR simulation, a thousand times trying to utilize his reforms? Would it ever have worked, or was it just not the way you talked about the economy and and the society? Is just the history of Russian and how it was structured. There was never going to be a happy ending. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Uh, the, the way that it usually gets posed is, that, you know, the, the question of there's, there's a book that came out in 1988 called the, the Gorbachev Phenomenon. And the argument is this, is that whoever it was who came into power in 1985 after Chernyanko dies, after, uh, you know, this is succession of sort of this these old leaders kind of die. 
that whoever it was, whether his name was Ivan Ivanov or Mikhail Gorbachev, whoever it was that got into that position of power would confront the exact same challenges uh, of the economy, the exact same malaise in the economy and, and, uh, and, and necessity for reform. And so whoever it was was going to have to institute some reform, and that would ultimately lead to the downfall of the Soviet Union. I don't know. I have, I have my doubts about that. You know, his main rival in sort of 1984, 85, as, as he's within the Politburo, was this guy, Grigory Romanov. Uh, and he was kind of, he was also a young go-getter. Gorbachev was young, you know, relatively speaking, compared to the, the other Politburo members at the time. Romanov was as well, but he was kind of the old-timey Brezhnevite, right? And, and so anti-reform, just kind of keep things going along and keep things sputtering along. And I imagine, you know, if it were Romanov who came into power in 1985 instead of Gorbachev, you know, yeah, the Soviet Union could have, you know, puttered along for another 30, 40, who knows, 50 years, you know, without substantial reform. But Gorbachev was the one to bring that to the fore and to kind of press the issue and to start to impose these uh these policies of, of perestroika and glasnost and, and an anti-alcohol campaign, which is, you know, I think one of the more interesting aspects that, that I write quite a bit about and democratization, all these sorts of things. But to your point, you know, I think once you started that process of reform, I don't see that, you know, that it could have ended up much of any other way, even though it was very hard for us to see at that point in time, very few people foresaw the, the collapse of the Soviet union, even as it was happening, even into 1990, you know, top experts on the Soviet Union, you know, did not foresee it breaking up peacefully into these 15 constituent republics as it had. So, and that's kind of like, you know, sort of the stain on Kremlinology and on political science is that, you know, what good are you? You couldn't even foresee what we all now see as, as being so blatantly obvious, right? Yeah, I guess that's the the benefit of hindsight bias. Now we can look back, at, you know, and do a postmortem and say, oh, of, of course, the system was endemically corrupt. And of course, uh, and a Soviet style administrative economy can't work you know, and uh, but it wasn't that seen that way at the time, even by, you know, uh, by specialists around the globe in the Soviet Union, in the United States. So it was it was, you know, something that was very hard to see coming. How was he remembered within Russia? Because in his passing, there have been a lot of glowing tributes out of the West, out of the U.S., and people were remembering his relationship with Reagan and the things like that. But how was he looked at within Russia? I mean, if if I had a, to give it an emoji, it would be like the the, the shrugging guy, right? You know, I was like the the, the TV sort of the pro Putin media after news uh, came of his passing, sort of articulated his role in in society, and then talked in, in exactly those terms. They they were saying on TV, there's like, oh, you know, uh, in the New York Times, they're giving great eulogies, and in, in Germany with the uh, builds, they're giving these great eulogies, you know, to, to Gorbachev as this great reformer and democratization, and then eventually they said. Um, yes, he was, he was a, a leader, you know, we have difference of, of opinion and maybe we shouldn't talk about that since he just passed away. Right. So being respectful of the fact that he just died, we won't pile on him at the moment. Um, and so, but the, the suggestion is that we will pile on to him later on because they do see it as, as, you know, this is the guy who cost us our superpower status, right? We used to be a great country and now look at us. That was kind of the feeling for much of the 1990s you know, and into the, the early 2000s was that that loss of, you know, the, the the great legacies of the Soviet Union, you know, going toe to toe with the United States or being on par with the United States and, and, and going from that to being, 
something less than a standard European power was uh, was quite galling for a lot of people. And they would the obvious person to blame was was Mikhail Gorbachev. So in the final analysis, how do you think he should be remembered? How would you kind of encapsulate what he meant to the the, the story of the world? Yeah, that's, uh, that's something I'm grappling with a little bit myself right now is is trying to think about how, you know, his, his place in the world. And I've, I've been reading all sorts of eulogies. There are millions of them, it seems now online, you know, everybody's got their remembrances and their, their positions, you know, and it's a complex relationship, right? So the, in the West, you know, that we're going to, to play up his, uh, you know, his democracy, his liberalism, all that sort of stuff in, in Russia, they're, you know, going to be, you know, very begrudging about his, his position. And then of course, in the middle, you've got, you know, these, the Baltic States, Ukrainians, Georgians, Lithuanians, who have a very complex relationship with him because, you know, they see him as the guy at once who was you know, sort of promoting this liberalization, but also cracking down on it later on. So it's a very complicated relationship in, in many ways. And so it's a weird position to be in that your great contribution to world history is kind of being a failure, right? Overseeing the collapse of your country. That's not necessarily the greatest thing that you know that, that you can be remembered for but i do think he'll be remembered as as you know a, a man of virtue a man of peace you know ultimately who was also a man of principle in, in many ways right so his his entire thing was when it came to the cold war and his relations with eastern european countries you know the idea was it should be up to you to decide. It should be up to the people to decide. And, and so that was the challenge for a lot of these leaders up and down Eastern Europe, East Germany, Poland, Czechoslovakia. They didn't know what this guy in, you know, in, in Moscow was all about, right? That they'd usually turn to the Kremlin to get their marching orders as to what to do. And so now they had this guy in the Kremlin who's saying, hey, you know, we here in the Soviet Union, we're doing what we need to do to reform our economy and our society. We're doing perestroika and we're doing glasnost because that's what we need to do for us. You guys in East Germany or in Poland need to figure out what you need to do, right? And, and so they started to tinker with their own systems and reform their own systems. And so in Poland, for instance, uh, what that looked like was these, these elections, two houses of parliament in um, Poland. Uh, and so, you know, legalization of the solidarity movement and allowing them to contest elections. And so in the, the you know, the Senate in, in Poland, the opposition, the anti-communist solidarity opposition won 99 out of 100 seats, right? And uh, the, the challenge for those communist leaders in Poland was, you know, how is this going to be received in, in Moscow? How is, you know, how is Gorbachev going to reply to this? And so they get on the phone very quickly and they call up, you know, uh, Gorbachev and the Kremlin. And they're like, what are we supposed to do? We've lost 99 out of 100 seats. This is just an embarrassment. And, and his response was, go with it, right? You have to respect the outcome of a democratic election. The people have to decide. And so that's ultimately up to you, what you polls are going to do about this. And so that, I think, was just kind of evidence of his his principle in this particular way that, yeah, this is going to you know deliver you know, the, the Soviet Union. This is going to be a black eye for them. But ultimately, you know, if we're going to be true to our principles, you know, and, and the principles of, of democracy and the principles of glasnost and, and, and liberalization, you got to respect that, right? And I think you have to respect Gorbachev for respecting those principles. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio In-Depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 
I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.